To follow along today's scripture passages from 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of, all, out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and he paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. 
My name's Brad. Love to meet you if I haven't had a chance to. I'm one of the elders here. And a quick update. We've told you guys that we would continue to keep you updated um, in regards to our meeting location. Um, God has given us favor with the new owner of Trinity Methodist, the historical sanctuary on Evergreen. It's built in 1923, same architect as the Pink Palace. And... Um, we have a lease that's been offered to the owner. We passed it his way, I believe, on Tuesday of last week. And so we would just ask that you would continue um, to pray along with us. Our goal is that we would move into that space on October the 6th. And so this lease is definitely a very, very important and last piece of that puzzle in coming together. And so continue to pray with us. Um, if you would, we're very encouraged and excited about what we believe the Lord is doing. So um, today we're continuing in this study of the life of David. And if you remember most recently as we looked at David's life in chapters 22 and 23, we saw David in the wilderness. And some of the things that we learned about the wilderness is that when we're in the wilderness, God doesn't abandon us. In fact, God meets with us in the wilderness of our lives, and he speaks to us through his word. He even encourages us with community and relationships and people that he sends around us, just like he sent Jonathan to David in order to encourage him. And today, we pick up in the context of the end of chapter 23. And in this moment in David's life, uh, David is in a bit of a cat and mouse game with Saul. Saul has literally isolated David uh, around one mountain, and David's on the other side, and Saul has his great army on the opposing side. And it's hard to tell from the text whether they're doing a Tom and Jerry routine, whether they're going back and forth. More than likely, Saul would have sent armies on either side, and so they're, they're coming in to surround David. There's nothing but the desert in front of him. There's no way of escape. And in those final moments, just before David is captured, Saul receives word that the Philistines have now once again attacked Israel and David is saved. Saul pulls his army back and he rushes back to save their people and their land. And David sees it once again. God has rescued him. One of the things that I love about the story of God and the story of David is that we get to see this real sense of what life is like. We get a sense of real life in reading the story of David. Not that you have an army that's coming against you or a king who is opposing you, but the messiness, the uncertainty, the reality that things rarely happen the way that we plan them. I mean, is that just me? Or do you have that experience sometimes that it seems life rarely turns out the way that you plan it? Some people would say that I'm a bit of a planner. My wife has said that before. Uh, I, I've got a, a screenshot of my calendar from last week for you. Um, doesn't that look pretty? Doesn't that look like a nice productive week? You see, red is appointments. Yellow is like, Blocks of time that don't move. Blue, that's just eh, administrative tasks. 
Green is personal stuff. That looks like a productive week, doesn't it? I remember one time I sent a calendar invite to my wife, and um, she rejected it. And I talked with her later about it, and I said, I think you made a mistake because you rejected the calendar invite that I sent you. And she said, I can't look at your calendar. It makes me anxious. And she said, I did reject your calendar invite. Now, I understand you might not be quite as planned as I am, but we all have plans, right? We all have expectations about how we hope and think and believe that life should work. When it comes to, most certainly, our families or marriage or our kids or work, we all have expectations about what we hope life will look like But life isn't always so simple. In fact, life gets complicated oftentimes. And in today's text, David illustrates how to follow God even in confusing times. How to to discern the will of the Lord when it seems like life is so such a storm is coming at you that that it would be impossible to know God's will. David helps us to see because the Spirit of God enables David. And understand that. It's not just David. David's not the hero of this story. David is always pointing us to Jesus, the greater David and the greater king. And it's the Spirit of God that's in David, the same Spirit of God that's in each of us that enables him to show character in the midst of crisis. The big idea of this story that I want us to see today is that character doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Character is developed by how we respond in our mistakes. Character doesn't mean that we're men and women without sin. Character is developed by how we respond to our sin. I want to unpack this story and then come back and look at some application at the end. And we're going to spend most of our time in the first seven verses of the story. I want to read those verses again, if you would follow along, beginning in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, And to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. 
If you look at verse 1, the writer of this text seems to have shifted. This is the only time that we see so far in this story in which the writer doesn't report on the results of the, of the battle with the Philistines. It seems as if the enemy of God has shifted. No longer are the Philistines the enemy of God. Now King Saul has become the enemy of God. And we see that Saul takes off with his army. He fights the Philistines in a battle. There's no report as to how that ends. But we see David in verse 1. We see that David has made his escape and he's gone to this well-known location called En Gedi. We know En Gedi today. You can go and, and visit it in Israel. Uh, it means spring of the goat. It was popular because there were water springs. There were even waterfalls. There was lush vegetation around this particular location. And most importantly, there were caves that were located there in the rocky cliffs. In verse 2, we see that Saul has just returned from battle. And Saul is at this point where his anger towards David has turned to rage... And whenever we find ourselves raging, we find that we get off balance, that we're unstable. And Saul is at a point where he's quickly left one battle and he grabs 3,000 fighting men and he returns to another battle. Very little rest in between and he's off balance. He's irrational and he's searching after David. And in verse 3, there's a very awkward verse that we read in Scripture. Saul is with his men, and even the king has to relieve himself. And the Old Testament tells us that bathrooms couldn't be located within the camp. Like you had to go outside the camp. And so I can only imagine Saul, much like a middle school student today, can I just go to the restroom can I find a moment of quiet in the restroom where I can get away from everyone? You know, the restroom's not a place where you want company, right? I mean, I live in a home in Midtown that has not enough restrooms for the amount of young men that are in, the, in our home. And, and like, you just don't want a lot of company in the restroom, you know? Yeah, we often have times have someone knocking on the door, like, hey, how much longer are you gonna be in there? Which is really an awkward question when you come to think about it. I've never yet figured out how to answer that question appropriately, but uh, this isn't a place for humor in this story, okay? Saul has gone into the cave in order to find rest, in order to get away, in order to relieve himself, because even the king has to find the restroom. And in that cave, David and his men, oh, the irony, are waiting in that cave. Saul walks into this place that we could only call vulnerable. It's the most appropriate word that I know. Nobody wants company in the restroom. And in verse 4, David's men begin to try to convince him. David, do you see what God is doing here? Now, this is where the story, I think, for David becomes so confusing. And I think it's where we can really begin to think about our own lives and the process. How do we understand the will of the Lord 
when we find ourselves in such confusing times, David's men, they begin quoting something. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see that in verse 4, they quote something to David. You'll see it in quotes. You won't find a footnote beside it. There's no other place where your, your, your reference is going to send you to another part of the Bible and say, oh, they were quoting from this passage of Scripture. We don't know what they're quoting. It sounds like Scripture. Maybe it was a prophecy. But we do this very often in our own lives. We blame God for things that God never intended. I believe it was likely a creative interpretation that they came up with on the spot to fit the circumstances. We do this all the time. I mean, God helps those who help themselves, right? The Lord works in mysterious ways, which is a great way of saying, hey, I'm going to take advantage of the situation, no matter what it means. Or one of my favorites, to thine own self be true. You'll never find those in the scriptures, but we oftentimes blame circumstances on God and then use that as an opportunity to take control. But David responds, not as his men imagine he would. He sneaks up on Saul. All along they think, David, he's with us. Like David understands the plan. But David does something so unusual. He only cuts the corner of the robe of the king. Now, we have to ask a question. I mean, I ask a question as I read this text. Did David, I mean, he's a man. Did he consider taking Saul's life? And the answer is we simply don't know what was going through the mind of David at this moment. The scriptures don't tell us. But in verse 5, the text does say that David was convicted by the Spirit of God. Look at the wording. Underline this. David's heart struck him. We're going to come back to that in just a minute because there's so much for us to learn in that little statement. David's heart struck him. Verse 6 tells us that obviously David's men are furious. I'm not sure exactly what prophecy that they were quoting to David, but what's certain is that they weren't on the same page that David was on. I don't know what they were saying in verse 4. I think most likely they were quoting something like Eminem's song, You Better Lose Yourself. Like, you only get one shot, David. Do not miss your chance. Your opportunity is only going to come, David, once in a lifetime. And what does David do? He blows it. He completely blows this opportunity. And they are furious. I mean... If you look at verse 7, I don't think any of the translations do justice to what we see in the Hebrew. I think the ESV uses a very soft term to say that um, he persuaded. The language seems to point to more of of a literal phrase of he tore them apart. Meaning that David was on such a different page than his men that he most likely had to threaten violence or bloodshed and either to hold them back in in order to keep them from going and taking Saul's life and taking this circumstance into their hands. So David has to threaten his own men with violence. And next, we see David do the unthinkable. Like, we, if you know these stories or even if you've, 
if this is a new story for you and, and you've, you've already heard it read today, and so you, you kind of know what happens in the story, and that just that, that kills the whole plot. But imagine that you don't know how this is going to turn out. Listen to verses 8 through 15, because David does something that is unthinkable. Pick up in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a, after a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In those verses, we find the most amazing statement by David. It comes in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but by my hand shall, but by my hand shall not be against you. Do you hear what David is saying there? David has stood up for himself in the previous verses. He stood up and he's defended himself, but he stops with that. And he recognizes the words of the Lord from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which simply says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And David determines in his heart that he will not take vengeance, but that he understands that God is the ultimate judge. David if you think about his story, he didn't ask to be anointed king of Israel. He was minding his own business. He was out with the sheep. He didn't ask for this job when Samuel showed up. He didn't ask to kill Goliath. He was merely going out to check on the battle, to see how his brothers were doing and to deliver a message back to his father. He didn't ask to be placed in Saul's court. None of this was according to his plan, but most certainly, it was not according to his plan to be, number one, enemy of the state. To be hunted by everyone who was loyal to Saul. But even in the confusion, even in the crisis that David faced, David recognized that God was in control. David recognized that God was his refuge and his strength. And he turned to God for help. He refused to take control into his own hands. David was willing to wait on the Lord, 
no matter how long it took, because he trusted God. And it all began with a heart prick. Don't miss that. It all began with a heart prick. When he cut the robe of King Saul, he recognized that this was a symbol of Saul's reign being cut short. Do you remember when Saul had sinned against the Lord and he begged Samuel to go to the Lord on his behalf? And Samuel refused. And the last time that we saw King Saul and Samuel together, Samuel the prophet walked away and Saul grabbed Samuel's robe. And as he did, his robe was torn apart. And Saul said, as he looked at Samuel, Samuel said to him, this is symbolic of your reign. The reign of your kingdom will be torn from you. And in this moment, when David cut the corner of his robe, he instantly realized that Saul's reign would be cut short. And he instantly realized that this was not his place. The robe of a king symbolized his authority. It symbolized his rule and his reign. And David realized that he was taking control away from God in that moment. And his heart was pricked. When you say, what what does that look like for your heart to be pricked? I don't have to work through the Hebrew. I don't have to go and look in a lexicon and, and, and do a lot of research and explain that to you. You know the feeling. I don't have to explain how that feels. When your heart is pricked and you get that gentle reminder from the Spirit of God that you are stepping outside of God's control, that you are stepping outside of God's boundaries, you know that moment in time And David, when his heart was pricked, he responded. He responded to the Lord. Character doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. Instead, character is developed by how we respond in the midst of our mistakes. How we respond in the midst of our sin. Think about David for just a minute. He could have easily patted himself on the back. He could have said, well... I mean, I feel, I feel sorry about the road, but you know, at least I didn't kill him. I mean, that's what all the men wanted me to do. So hey, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, it could have ended a lot worse. But instead, he responded to the Spirit when his heart pricked him. When his heart, literally the Scriptures say, when his heart struck him, he stopped. He repented. He gave control back into God's hands. And, and, and think about the results of that. That moment in time when David's heart struck him because he stepped back and realized this is not my control to take. The Lord is at work here. Because David repented, it enabled him to do what? It enabled him to stand up for himself to walk out of that cave and to cry out to Saul in amazing courage. There are 3,000 fighting men who have all been given the mission of taking David's life. They're not bringing him back alive. And David is willing with great courage. Don't miss this. He stood up for himself. He said, hey, Saul, All the things that you are saying against me, they're not true. This is who I am. This is the kind of character and person that I am. I am a follower of God. 
But not only did he stand up for himself, but then he stood in great courage and he said, but my trust, King Saul, is not in you. My trust is in the Lord. Do you you get a picture of how powerful that is, what that could look like in each of our lives? If in those moments when our hearts strike us, when we know that we are stepping outside of God's rule and reign and his boundaries. I mean, can, can you imagine what it would look like if in those moments we repented and how God would enable us to step out of literally the cave and the darkness that we find ourselves in when we take control, when we put all the weight of life on our own shoulders and when we say we will overcome on our own, like I will make a way. Think about what it feels like when you can let go and you can say, this is not mine to hold, this is not mine to carry, and this is not mine to bear, and I can give it to the Lord. Here's the problem with that. It sounds really good. But in order to do that, David had to wait. Because I'm not gonna finish the rest of this story Because quite honestly, it's not worth reading. Because if we know anything about King Saul, it's that he can't be trusted. And all the promises that he makes to David, he's going to go back on. Because he's a man who's turned his back toward the Lord. And he doesn't even realize it. But here's what makes it so hard for us to let go of control. Is that we have to wait. And that's why David would write over and over and over again. He would write songs in the book of Psalms about what it means to wait upon the Lord. How many of us know, friends, or maybe even in our own lives, moments where life would have gone so much better if we would have just waited on the Lord? I mean, think about those who say, I don't know if I can trust the Lord. I mean, I'm not finding anybody to marry. I mean, I know the standards that I've had or that God has for me, but I think I just got to go with what I got. I mean, I don't know if I can wait any longer. Think about many of the people that you know, how that turned out. Think about when it comes to our work, how often when things get bad at work, what do we do? We instantly try to take control and fix things, or we just look for a way of escape. We just want to abandon all the crisis, all the conflict, and how often we refuse to wait on the Lord. And I, I, I know people in their lives, they look back, man, they've gone through seven, eight, nine, ten jobs. Why? Because when conflict arose, they just abandoned. How often do we do this with our kids? Like when we try to take control in our kids' lives? I mean, this is one of the ones that's been toughest for me as a parent. I mean, it's one thing for my own life, but my kids, I mean, I just want to fix things for them. I just want to make things better. I want to figure out the perfect solution. Or sometimes I end up putting so much pressure on my kids because I, I, want, I want things to change for them. And I don't understand that God's plan is that they would wait and that I would wait because God does some of his best work in our waiting. You want to know what's worse than waiting? Being out of control. And most of us refuse to be out of control. David, in this moment, 
turns control over to the Lord. What would it look like in your life today if you took just a moment to think about the areas where you have stepped outside of God's boundaries, when God has struck your heart and He's pricked you and you've just kept on going? Those areas where you've grabbed control in your circumstances. It's easy to find them. It's the stuff that keeps you up at night. It's the things that bring anxiety. Because anxiety is always fear that's gone unprocessed. Anxiety is always fear in our lives that we've refused to take to God. Because fear is a great thing. I stepped outside of my office this last week, this little shed in my backyard, and there was a snake right where that microphone is. And I just about went into the cave to relieve myself, <clears throat> like Saul. I mean, I, I ran and screamed, and ah! it was something like that. <laughs> um, I don't like snakes. That's a fear, and that's a good fear, because if that snake was a rattlesnake, he could have bit me. So fear is a very good thing. But when we don't take our fears to the Lord and say, God, I need you. I can't face this fear on my own. Then those fears become anxiety under the surface of our life. Each of us, we take control in so many different areas. You can find them with anxiety. You can find them in what keeps you awake. You can find them when you just think about what, it, what brings, what circumstances in my life bring an unusual sense of dread that I can't seem to explain. Each of those are areas in, in our lives where we've taken control. And, and here's what's so funny about it. This is such a simple message. Such a simple message. Control. Adam and Eve, they struggled with it. It's all about trusting in God, right? It's all about, is he really good? I mean, if we've come to know Christ, this was the first lesson that we learned in our relationship with God, right? Turn it all over to him. But there's something about our lives and our hearts that just doesn't allow us to really see life clearly. I know this last week, um, there were some areas of control that I had that I had taken on in my life, and I talked with Katie some, and I talked with my coffee group some, and they were help, able to help me see. Talked with Jason some, and the Lord used those conversations to let me see that you know all my plans and all the details sometimes they just become too much, and the Lord enabled me to see I can let go of control. And I can trust him with those things. And when he showed me that, I gained an incredible sense of relief. But I know that I'll face those same struggles this next week. Like, it's not over. And so my question to you is, what would it look like today if you began to say, God, I want to trust you in some of these areas of my life where things seem to be a crisis where I don't want to wait, where, where I don't want to let go of control. I mean, what would it be like? Because God seems to do some of his greatest work in our lives in the crisis of our lives. Like, will you invite him into the crisis? We see that all throughout the Bible, that God does his greatest work in our crisis. Jesus was the greater David. 
And his ministry began with an opportunity in the desert, just like David, to seize control. What did Satan say when he tempted Jesus? He said, Jesus, all you got to do is bow down. All you got to do is worship me. And Satan tempted Jesus to take the easy way. To gain the crown without the cross. If he would simply bow down and worship. But Jesus was the greater David. And he followed God's will. And we can be glad he did. Because our very salvation was at stake in that moment. For many of us, listen to this statement. You say, what's on the line here? For many of us, in the same way that Jesus followed in obedience after God, for many of us, our usefulness to Jesus lies in whether or not we will patiently wait on the Lord, trusting in His will, standing on His promises, and allowing Him to take control of our lives. David would go on to write in Psalm 37, verse 34, Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Wait on the Lord. David would write in Psalm 40, I waited patiently upon the Lord. He inclined and He heard my cry. He rescued me out of the pit, out of the miry clay. And I will sing, sing a new song. I want to ask if you would just to bow your heads with me for a moment. Today as you bow your head and take just a moment to consider your life and consider some of the ways in which you might have taken control in areas that God hasn't allowed you Ways in which you've stepped outside of his boundaries. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to ask, if your heart is struck this morning, if you're convicted, I want to pray for you. I wonder if this might be a moment of repentance for you. Where you would say, you know what? God has really touched on a portion of my life that I need to turn back over to him. And if that's true for you, I want to ask that you would have the courage to acknowledge that by sticking your hand up so I can pray for you. Just sticking your hand up and then putting it back down. Thank you. Thank you. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if there's anyone here today who would say, you know what? I've never given God control of my life. I've thought that he's asked for me to follow a lot of rules And I've thought that he's invited me into religion, but I've never invited Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to take control of my life. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you more about that. Would you mind just sticking your hand up and putting it back down so I could pray for you? If you've never given God complete control over your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of David, but God, thank you so much more for the greater David, for Jesus, who showed us what it looks like to walk in obedience, to wait patiently upon the Lord, to allow you and your plan and your ways to unfold. God, thank you that because of Jesus, we can believe that your ways are always better, even when they're difficult, even when they involve crisis. 
Father, I pray by your spirit that you would strike our hearts and that no matter how small or large it might seem, God, I pray that we would be obedient. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.